we had a chance of facing the, the, the crimes which were committed on behalf of the whole nation uh, some 25 years ago when Milosevic was arrested and taken to the Hague. We, as a society, decided not to do it. We have lied to ourselves continuously for 25 years. We created these auto-victimizing narratives. We forgot the crimes that were committed. The, the number of people younger than 21 years who know that something was going on in the beginning of the 1990s in the city called Fukovar is less than 1%. Welcome to the Coffee House Conversations from the banks of the Danube here in Vienna. My name is Ivan Vejvoda. I'm the permanent fellow at the Institute for Human Sciences, where I lead a program called Europe's Futures, where we host every year about eight fellows. And I have the great pleasure of introducing one of this year's fellows, Vladimir Arsenievich, who is a prolific writer and cultural worker. Since 1994, he has published 12 works, mainly novels, but also collections of stories, essays, and graphic novels. He has also written for film and theater, as well as for various daily newspapers, magazines, and internet portals. His works have been translated into more than 20 languages. He has been awarded the equivalent of the Booker Prize in Serbia, the NIN Prize in 1994, and the Steria Prize in 1996, as well as the National Library of Serbia Award for the most read book in Serbia in 2011. He is the president and creative director of the association Krokodil. Vladimir, welcome to this podcast. Thank you, Ivan. Nice to see you again. Absolutely. Nice to see you. Uh, although our listeners will only hear us, they won't see us. Oh, but that's, okay. That, that's okay. <laughs> um, Vladimir, let's dive into the uh, deep end. You are, a, as I just said, a novelist, a writer, but you're also an engaged intellectual defending freedom of speech and human rights. We'll go into some of the more specific activities that you've been engaged in. But tell me, how do you see your role in Europe, in our society, in Serbia, and more generally as an engaged person? Well, basically, after the end of all wars uh, that spent the uh, last decade of the 20th century here in what we now refer to as, you know, former Yugoslavia or post-Yugoslavia or Southeastern Europe or the Western Balkans or any euphemism that you might think of. What remained was these scattered, newly formed states with lots of things in common and some reconstruction that was not really political in essence, and I started very early on, already in the autumn of the year 2000, I started with the publishing house Rende, and our main imprint was called Ledolomats, which was the icebreaker. The idea was to really break the ice that was in the meantime formed between these brotherly nations, such, such as Serbs, Croats, Montenegrins, Bosnians, but also Slovenians, 
Kosovo Albanians, Macedonians or Northern Macedonians as we call them now. And we started very early on publishing these writers that we, we were not able to read for the full decade. We noticed that there was a great sense of joy among the people, among the reading audiences, rediscovering this. It felt like something positive is finally finally happening. So being that the future is not exactly as we hoped it to be here in the, in the Balkans, and that some of the demons of the past seem to continuously breathe down our neck and are not seemingly going away anywhere. And we are still facing nationalisms, we are still facing sectarianism, uh, local hatred, whatever. So this works feels even 25 years on even more important than ever. So after my stint in publishing House Rende, I, I started the literary festival Crocodile. And Crocodile obviously means crocodile. Uh, but it's also an abbreviation for, I'm not even going to say it in Serbian because it will sound silly, but in English it stands for uh, literary regional gathering which alleviates boredom and lethargy. And the idea was to really form the platform where people could meet, exchange thoughts, discuss social, political, but also artistic, literary issues, and also read in front of these audiences. And it grew enormously. I mean, nowadays, we have started in 2009. It's probably the biggest literary festival in the region. I mean, it really gathers big crowds. We oftentimes have more than 1,000 people in the audiences, which for the literary events is really, really huge. And then we continued. We set up the Residence for Writers that is still active from 2012. We formed this Crocodile Center place. And as the situation in the country and in the region has gradually become darker and darker and more pessimistic, we decided uh, that really it's time to roll up your sleeves and do the work. And this is where the activist and also humanitarian side of our whole existence became even slightly more important to us than the purely literary and cultural. So you were, in fact, reaching across newly created borders where there weren't borders for more than 70 years. But at the same time, what you're saying is, in fact, borders were not there for people who really wanted to continue an engagement, a critical approach, knowing that there were other good people on the other side. Of course. And the question of size is really relative. And this is something that maybe people from abroad have a hard time understanding. I mean, people here in, okay, let's call it the Balkans. I, I don't even care anymore. But I mean, you know, they're really, really good at hating each other. And we have shown the depths of what we can actually accomplish and commit horrific atrocities and even genocide and, you know, the things that we have shown not only to the world but to ourselves mostly were, were absolutely mind-boggling. But in the same time, people understand each other. Even in the 1990s, we lo- whenever there would be like a conference, international conference somewhere, and then the, the person from Bosnia and Croatia and Serbia would just get together be- and they would just go to the ne- nearby pub and have a drink. I remember that could, time very well. Exchange, <laughs> of course, they could exchange things. Even now, the most die-hard nationalists from wherever in the region do not consider the neighboring country as a foreign country. It's not abroad. 
Abroad is still on the other side of the former Yugoslav frontiers. Austria is abroad for the Yugoslav, well, post-Yugoslav people, or, I don't know, Romania or Greece or something like that. But Bosnia never becomes abroad to the Serbs, disregarding their political opinions. And this is the texture of the region. And this is why the idea of the region is actually very solid to us. It does exist. It does not have to be a political entity. And it's the best for it not ever to be a unified political entity. But it should not stop us communicating. Plus, we have this binding element, which is the language, at least when these mid-parts of the former Yugoslavia are concerned. So Montenegro, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Croatia, and Serbia share the same language. Linguistically, we do speak the same language. The fact that we messed it up there as well, and so the final result was, you know, the existence of these four political languages, and we're creating a lot of confusion everywhere, and, you know, influence the costs of everything because things need to be forcibly translated from one language to another language, does not mean that we do not understand each other. And even if there were attempts in the beginning to produce subtitles in Croatia for a Serbian movie or to translate books, again, with high-quote marks, it, it, it was just, I mean, ridiculous. So very soon that was stopped. Nobody in their right mind ever translates. And basically what we call languages, we actually consider variants, four variants, four standards of the self-same language that unfortunately does not have an official name, but still it's there and it's a very important tool for our communication. And this is what makes this region very specific. And these are the things that I think should be cherished and uh, used in order for us to develop further as a region and only as separate political state entities. Yeah, uh, overnight we became polyglots, speaking one uh, but four languages. But also this has been something that I've been saying for many, many years, that in fact we have much more what's, for lack of a better word, called regional cooperation then meets the eye, even in our public opinion, let alone in international public opinion, exchanges in culture, theater, as you just mentioned, in literature, not to mention sports. There is a a regional life, which I think is, if I understand what you're saying, is something we can build on to overcome some of the dire separations, nationalisms that have occurred. But let me move on to another part of your engagement. And of course, now referring to the Russian uh, aggression and full-scale invasion of Ukraine, you have traveled, as far as I know, at least twice to Ukraine on a humanitarian and political, I would add, mission to show solidarity with the Ukrainian people. Tell us a little bit about this initiative and what your impressions were. Well, immediately upon the start of the full scale of Russian aggression in February 2022, we clearly understood that neither the official reaction by the political elites in Serbia nor the attitudes of your average Serbian people were going to be as we would want them to be. And we just thought that it was very important for us to 
organize a different support that was meant to really recognize and show empathy to the Ukrainian people who were suffering in the, the consequences of this full-scale aggression. So together with our Ukrainian friends, we started already in March 2022 the first round of collecting humanitarian help for the city perinatal center in Kharkiv. This hospital for the prematurely born babies happened to be exactly on the front line. And we have seen these disturbing images of the hospital personnel, of these doctors and nurses really bringing these babies down to these cellars and incubators in order to to try and save their lives. And the lives of the prematurely born babies are, um, you know, it's very hard to keep them alive in, in the best of conditions let alone in such a really bad situation in which they found themselves. And we were lucky to have a a really good contact with the Institute for Neonatology here in Belgrade. So they provided for us a couple of neonatal respirators that needed to be serviced. And then together with some other organizations and companies, we managed to collect the size zero diapers. And everything for the prematurely born babies is a bit more complicated because it's not out there on the market. You really need to contact the companies because this is only provided to the hospitals. So the thing took some time, but eventually in early June of that year, we traveled together first to Ushkorod and then together with two medical vehicles uh, that were also sent uh, all the way down to Kharkiv. We traveled uh, all the way to the eastern parts of the country. And people sometimes do not realize the size, the immensity of of Ukraine. I mean, from here, from Belgrade to Ushkorod, on the other side of the Ukrainian, Hungarian and Slovak border, it's a tripartite border, it's like 800 kilometers. But then from Ushkorod to Kharkiv, it's another 1,400 kilometers. So it's a long way to travel. It really takes a long time to get there. And obviously, we have passed through Yanka and Pucha and Kiev. And then, you know, when you pass Dnieper River, and then clearly you see that the country is in the war. In the western parts of the country, you can still fool yourself. But there, I mean, the amount of destruction is absolutely horrifying. And while we were in Kharkiv, there there was still active fighting going on in the northern outskirts of the city. And there was this weird situation where people might be having a coffee in this hipster cafe and you're drinking cappuccino and eating cheesecake, but there's explosions over there just around the corner and and you hear them and and you see them. And we remembered our, our situation in the 1990s as well through that. The next year, we collected humanitarian help for the township of Blizniuki in the easternmost parts of Kharkiv region, very close to Donbass, very close to the front line, where this little settlement actually of 3,500 people had altogether 5,000 internally displaced persons. And there was this humanitarian disaster on a major level locally. And we noticed that the media image of the war is very urban. We tended to hear a lot of information of what's going on in Odessa or in Kiev or in, in Kherson or in Kharkiv, but nobody ever tells you what happens to the people living in the villages somewhere in the backwaters of, of Ukraine. And these people suffer greatly. 
So when we ask this social center in Bliznuki what would be their basic needs, I mean, the list was just heart-wrenching. I mean, warm clothing and canned food and aspirin and diapers for elderly, just really, really basic stuff that these people needed. So again, we collected. And then we noticed, because we always did this in order to help the people of Ukraine, but also in order to, in a way, enrich the narratives that exist here back home in Serbia that were so intensely pro-Russian that we needed to kind of counter them with some, something else. And I think we managed to wake the simple empathy with some people. So when we set up the call for collecting humanitarian help the second time, the number of people who joined in was by far much, much larger than the first time. And we were very happy to see the old lady coming to our Kokodri Center with just, you know, one kilogram of sugar or something that they could afford, like a bag of diapers or something. So that was really great. And we traveled again and we then continued down towards Donbass. And again, the amount of destruction, I mean, you know, you pass through these villages and every single thing which has been built with human hands has been systematically ruined. So why would you need to ruin uh, a children's kindergarten and a mini market and the church? And can you see what I mean? It just doesn't make any sense apart from really wanting to destroy life there and the whole continuity of life. So nowadays we just advertise uh, again for the third time to collect humanitarian help uh, for the citizens of Kherson. Now with this uh, two-dimensional worldview, uh, because of the tragedy in the Middle East, uh, Ukraine almost does not, you know, exist in the news anymore. And so the amount of empathy is really shrinking. And this is really dangerous. It gives an open ground to Putin and his forces to basically do whatever they like. And the amount of grenading and fighting in Kherson has intensified in the meantime, and nobody seems to care. So again, we are collecting basic food packages for the people there. We got in touch with the Center for Democracy in Zagreb, who are also collecting uh, so-called female packages, because sometimes in the humanitarian help, some basic stuff is missing. So things like tampons are a necessity. And in the mid-February, we will go for the third time and, and bring help to the people who need it the most. We also turned our residence for writers into a writer and exile program. And you have actually, Ukrainian writers, yes? In yes, residence? actually uh, Ukrainian literary creators. So mm-hmm. to be able to invite not only prose writers and poets, but also translators, historians, philosophers, essayists, newspaper, I mean, people who write in cultural media and so forth. And so we are uh, now receiving a lot of applications because, again, the number of offers coming from uh, European countries has diminished immensely. And we just feel that now it is very important to step up, to not lose stamina, and to really continue to provide help until this tragedy is finally over. So let me ask you a sort of broader question on that. Our country, uh, because we both come from Serbia and Belgrade, uh, is seen uh, as a country that is, well, the only country in Europe that hasn't put sanctions on Russia 
while at the same time, of course, at the UN, it has voted with those condemning the Russian aggression. There's a lot of talk in Western media that Serbia is supplying ammunition and some small weapons consistently from last year to Ukraine. Interestingly, our president's wife traveled to Kiev to meet uh, the first lady Uh, in Kiev. And and our president has met President Zelensky about five times in various venues. And it seems they have a good relationship, which leads me to sort of a a broader contextualization. As a political scientist, a sociologist, I like to say in conversations that Serbia is a Western society. I mean, partly because of history, geography, We always travel westwards. My generation never traveled eastwards. And yet, because of what happened in the 90s, the Milosevic, catastrophic Milosevic regime, a lot of young people are disabused. And in opinion polls, we get results that serves like Putin and serves like Russia. But then when you ask them not to belabor this, where they want to travel, where they want to educate their children, it's all... Western-oriented. How do you see this this situation? Well, I see it as this massive confusion which penetrated society from everywhere. And I think that people really sort of lost their ground and have serious problems thinking clearly. I tended to lately really think in terms of a social, psychological illness rather than a political situation. And we really need some healing quickly as a society. You know, on 3rd of May this year, this boy entered the primary school and murdered nine of his peers and a school guard. The whole society was in a state of shock. And everybody was trying to figure out what on earth is wrong with us altogether. To me, it's kind of like a late alarm. We should have asked ourselves that when the atrocities were committing in Bosnia and Herzegovina, in Croatia, much earlier on, we had a chance of facing the, the, the crimes which were committed on behalf of the whole nation uh, some 25 years ago when Milosevic was arrested and taken to the Hague. We, as a society, decided not to do it. We have lied to ourselves continuously for 25 years. We created these auto-victimizing narratives. We forgot the crimes that were committed. The, The number of people younger than 21 years who know that something was going on in the beginning of the 1990s in the city called Vukovar is less than 1%. I mean, this is a shame for the society to be able to create this smoke screen in order to protect itself from a simple responsibility that needed to be taken what was done there. And then, to just give you a broader picture, this boy enters the school and starts shooting at, at his counterparts and kills them in cold blood. Across the road from the school, there was a mural dedicated to Putin. There was a mural of Putin with lettering with the word brat written in Cyrillic, a brother. I think not even 20 or 30 meters away from there, there was another mural overlooking the children's playground that said, which is a warmongering, militaristic message 
saying when the army returns to Kosovo that kind of hopes for the another military reoccupation of the Kosovo region on behalf of Serbia. Let's not mention the mural Vratko Mladic, the war criminal, which has been hailed as a Serbian hero and his images were stenciled in thousand copies all over all over Serbia, always with this simplified message, the, the Serbian hero, Srpski heroi. And this is not even an end to it. So this is just a, a couple of countries of meters of one street in the central Belgrade. So what would you expect from the society? The media, which is tightly controlled by the government, and if you look at the average newspaper kiosk in, in Serbia, basically this is just tabloids screaming these headlines, which are by definition hateful. There's always uh, one man or another victim. It's either one of the neighboring nations or the LGBTQ population or the migrants, or there's always somebody who is guilty for something. So this whole situation has been uh, very carefully created, constructed, and put on a very solid fundament. And I think for the people of Serbia, it would be very hard to see through this small screen that has been created. So to me, it's very naive to hope that the change of some political figures at the elections, because we now have the upcoming elections. Indeed, on December 17, yes. Yeah, would, would sort our problems. It would not. Because the major problems which are really burdening Serbia are actually accepted equally by almost all the political players. So if you ask any of the political parties that stand any chance at the elections, what would be their attitude towards Putin as opposed to Ukraine? How about the recognition of the independence of Kosovo? What is their stand on the LGBTQ population and the right of people to choose their identities? And so on and so forth. You would just get the same conservative replies for practically all of them. There's definitely, I would agree with you, uh, a deliberate confusion that has been created in uh, the heads of of people, and that's why we get these kinds of results in in opinion polls. But the opinion polls that dig deeper with focus groups, as I said earlier, all point to the West. So it is definitely the responsibility of leadership to actually then, even though Every government that we have had has uh, continued and repeated that we want to go towards the European Union. The tabloids every morning have different messages. And I like to say we're fighting a war, as you just said, with everyone. And people simply are sort of anesthetized on issues and say, well, we're not having a war. And so, you know, I'm happy with what I have. Plus, as we know, there are the social handouts or what's called colloquially helicopter money that's being distributed to pensioners that are ever more numerous and young people are deciding to join the European Union individually and not only young people of of all professions. You said that you don't expect much change after the election. I, I take slightly more nuanced view because democracy is messy, as we know, and takes time. So uh, I'm somewhat more, more hopeful that we will see a bit of a change. I, I'm not expecting anything radical. 
and in fact, what we're seeing is the president is responding to what was the original agreement on Kosovo with Prime Minister Kurti of Kosovo. And we're seeing Serbs in the north accepting Republic of Kosovo car plates and ID cards. And of course, we have had the resignation of the very pro-Russian Mr. Vulin, who was head of the uh, secret services. So something is moving. We'll see how far how far it goes. Let me take you now to the other side, to, to the European Union, uh, which with the Russian aggression of Ukraine has woken up, to put it very simply. Uh, enlargement is back. Many declarations from all the principal leaders that without enlargement, the European Union will not be complete. And geopolitically and geostrategically, we must confront uh, Russia and Putin, because who knows what happens if, God forbid, uh, Russia has the upper hand in, in this war, and thus the support for Ukraine is is fundamental. Uh, we have had visits from Ursula von der Leyen. Uh, NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg was in Belgrade. I don't think that a Secretary General of NATO would visit a country that's pro-Russian. And I think that gives a sort of a signal to, to a certain number of people. Is the European Union doing enough? Of course, understanding always that our countries need to do all the work of democratization. Can the European Union do more? You obviously meet a lot of Europeans, you travel. Give us a sense of how you see this situation? Well, it's hard to tell because sometimes there is a clear feeling that Russia or China are basically leading that propaganda war in Serbia. It all, unfortunately, has to do with all these emotional truths that have taken place of pure photography ever since, again, the, the, the 1990s. And the reductionist truth is that hey, NATO has bombed us, the EU were bombing us. They were not only bombing us, they were kind of like spraying us with depleted uranium, so we're all dying of cancer here. And Russia never bombed us. And this is very tense. I mean, for the majority of the people, no, you know, the, the, this is as far as their thinking goes, so they're easily manipulated. There is also this massive chip on the shoulder, I have to say, on, 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 on the whole Serbian situation. There's graffiti on the wall in Beogradska Street where, where I live. We will never forget. And then the date of the beginning, what was it, 27th of March, 1999. So the NATO bombing took, what, three months altogether? And it was horrifying. And, you know, even one victim is one victim too much altogether. But, you know, if you put it in the context again of what Serbia has been doing very systematically throughout the region of former Yugoslavia for the previous eight or nine years, 18 countries do not just get together and go and bomb somebody for, for no reason. It takes a lot of guts to move NATO towards you. I mean, you really have to wave them here and to send them all the signals. So we're really, really good in messing it up. And then again, not accepting it. But then, as you notice, people actually down deep beneath all that know the actual truths. Indeed. So when they travel, they go to Germany. When they want to go for their economical betterment, they do not travel to Chechnya 
they would go to Sweden or, you know, Denmark or anywhere else. So clearly they recognize how the things stand. I think our politicians very well know where the support is actually coming from, the actual support. When you need to reconstruct the infrastructure of the country, you know who is actually providing credits and who is just providing this futile empty support or just buys away the infrastructure of the country and uses it in a really bad way like the Chinese oftentimes do. So there are all these things things at stake. And I think that one thing that defines Vucic and his government is uncanny ability to sit on not only two stools, but really several stools in the same time. He's really having all these narratives. And, you know, he kind of brings one suit for Brussels and then another for Moscow, but he also has another when he goes to the Arab investors of of Belgrade Waterfront uh, project or Chinese or something like that. And, you know, it, it might even seem like politics, but I think it's just mess. And there was always a need to compare Croatia and Serbia and, and the people in the region somehow always, always do it. But nowadays, one thing is very clear. I mean, you can discuss the path that Croatia has taken, but there is definitely a path, whereas Serbia seems to be running in circles. I seriously think that there is only one future for Serbia, and this is to join the rest of the European countries in the EU. And it has to be beneficial, both for not only Serbia, but again, the rest of the Western Balkan countries. Unfortunately, looking at Hungary or Poland until recently, we know that membership does not guarantee good manners. So how we will function there, it remains to be seen. I can imagine that the anti-EU sentiments could be even more on the rise within the EU. Because I think the majority of the Serbian people actually sees the EU, again, in this very reductionist way, as like sort of like a pool of easy credits. And so if we don't change our position in the EU, it could probably again create a backlash. And indeed, the blessing in disguise of the Russian aggression of Ukraine is that enlargement is back and that the European Union now is seriously moving on Ukraine, Moldova, possibly Georgia. And we are on that path because we have been for all too long, for 10 years, and now we are in the streamline of of that movement. And so we are part of this enlargement package. And in terms of size, which is always important, our whole region is practically half of Ukraine in terms of population. If Ukraine's population today is about 31 million, we're below 16 million, I believe, with all the demographic changes that we have. And so either we pull ourselves by our bootstraps and somehow realize that, as I fully agree with you, we have no other path. I like to say that it's enough to look at the geographic map to understand this. You don't need any political analysis, don't need to go into history and and culture about it. And so 
when people say, but it's not right to say there aren't alternatives. Of course there is. It's self-isolation. It's like Albania was in the 60s, you know, a country tied to China in the middle of Europe that had bunkers on all of its borders. Yeah, that's an alternative. But, you know, I'm not sure people want that alternative. And that's why they understand that Europe is, with all of its faults, the future that we will follow. Recently, we had, of course, the result in the Netherlands. I'm alluding to what you just said. You know, we have the rise of the far right, uh, a far right party coming first in the election in the Netherlands. In Austria, where I am now, the far right is polling at the top. The IFD in Germany as well. So I think you're right to warn about what the mood in Europe will be. Because clearly there is uh, a difficulty in addressing the issue of migration, while at the same time Europe needs workforce. 400,000 are needed every year in Germany. And to square that circle is, is extremely difficult. As we're moving on, uh, Vladimir, I'd like to ask you a little bit about the cultural landscape. Have these times been dire for culture, writing, theater, cinema, or are we seeing an addressing of the key issues? And I would agree with you that we're not doing nearly enough on addressing the past. That That is something that will be left for, for generations to come, although many activists are doing it within civil society or individually. Mm. Cultural figures have always been on the forefront of actually addressing these issues and taking responsibility for whatever happens in the country. Our well-known actors are very politically active. The new generation of writers, they happen to be, well, not mostly female, but females are definitely playing a much stronger role in the new generations of writers in this country than any time previously. And almost all of them, by definition, have this activist streak to them. They are very eloquent regarding various political social questions, the rights of women, the rights of LGBT and queer communities, the migrant issues, and also including the responsibility for anything that we just covered up and dug into the ground and refused to to face as the society. The theater has had always a huge, very strong production of political plays, of awakening plays that were meant to really shake people from the ground and make them think if they can't do it in, in any other way. The only problem is that cultural products do not figure as anything particularly important in the things that your average Serbian person is consuming on a daily level. What they are consuming are crappy TV shows, you know, like this, you know, Balkan style. Reality TV. Music, like, yeah, like, like Turbo Folk, really cheap TV series, you know, and tabloid newspapers. And this is something that forms the worldview. So it's really, really hard to fight these things. I hate to think that it's the problem of cultural figures and producers of cultural content in the Balkans. To put it in the context of things that we were saying in the beginning of the talk regarding the communication in the region, the writers were first to start sort of rebuilding the broken bones. As I told you, they, they, there was this joy in rediscovering this communication among the writers. They're craving this 
larger market, so to say. It, and it has not much to do with the sale of books or making money, but just to reach out the, the, the bigger number of people to really feel that your literature makes an impact. And we are happy to say, at least in Serbia, the situation is slightly different or actually dramatically different in Croatia, unfortunately. But in Serbia, regional writers are regarded as literary stars. They are well-read, they are, they are well-liked, they sell a lot of books, they're a part of the uh, literary stardom in, in Serbia. And this is something which is sharply opposed to Serbian social mainstream, which has by far been, by definition, very conservative, very suspicious of everything which has not been twice ethnically and nationally confirmed. And so there are clearly two different realities there coexisting. Again, the problem is that obviously we are leaving this country to the young people and the young people tend not to read that much. Apart from a very small minority, they do not form their views on what they can find in, in books or high-quality cinema or let alone theater or anything like that. And unfortunately, again, is the social networks and uh, easy flow of unconfirmed information you know, that you find all over the internet, which actually influences them the most. Vladimir, I'd like to end then on that note, which is, I think, one of hope and of, as you said, intellectuals, people of thought and, and art and theater who are always there on the front lines with other activists that are not absent, of course. But we have a long way to go. And as we said, Serbia expects elections in the not-too-distant future, so we'll see how it goes. But the work continues. And I'm very glad to see that you and uh, Krokodil, your organization, are really at the forefront of some of these key activities, and especially the solidarity being shown to colleagues and others from Ukraine and other countries. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ivan. It was a pleasure talking to you as ever. That concludes this episode of Vienna Coffeehouse Conversations, the podcast brought to you by the Europe's Futures Programme at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna. Europe's Futures is a programme of impact, ideas and action for a Europe that rises to the challenges of the 21st century and is undertaken in collaboration with the Esther Foundation. To find out more about our work and research, visit europesfutures.eu.